All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Genesis 14. Looking at verses 1 through 16 today, the title of the message, The Consequences of Associations. Now, last time we were together in the text, we left Abram walking the length and the breadth of the land which God had promised to give both to him and to give to his posterity. We'll talk more, quite a bit more about that in Genesis 15. But as Abraham is walking this land, you recall last time as we were talking, we talked about Lot. Abraham and Lot had come into conflict. More, more their servants had come into conflict uh, because the land could not sustain them. So Abram looks at Lot and he says, choose which way you will go and I'll go the opposite way. Whatever way you want to go, go. And I'm going to go the other direction. And the Bible tells us that Lot chose to settle in the plains of Jordan. But not just in the plains of Jordan, but the text told us in Genesis 13 that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom and chose to dwell in the cities of the plains. And Sodom being one of those cities, Sodom being said specifically to be a city that was, verse 13 of chapter 13 says, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And today we begin to see the fruit of Lot's choice in this regard. Fruit which we will not see come to full fruition until Genesis 19, but which we will see today come to partial fruition. And that's what we're going to spend our time thinking about in our application a little later. The consequences of associations, the fruit of Lot's choice to associate himself with that city. So we pick up in Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 where the Bible says this. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elasar, Chertolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shimeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chertolaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Chertolaomer and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, unto El Paran which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Enmishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelled in Hazazontamar. And there went out from the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, excuse me, and there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the same is Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidim with Chedileomer, king of Elam and Tidal, the king of nations and Amraphel, king of Shinar and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings with five. And the vale of Sidim was full of slime pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So we read this historical account of a battle, a battle between two confederacies. The first confederacy was made up of four kings, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, 
and title the king of nations. Based upon the regions mentioned here, these kings were certainly from the east. Perhaps uh, they were seeking to subjugate the land of Canaan as a part of what we might presume to be a larger empire-building strategy that would not necessarily be out of the norm for what we would expect in this time. The plains of Shinar were actually where Nimrod began his empire, and Elam would have been generally east of that point. Now, Chirdeleomer, again, he is the king of that area of Elam, and the way that the text describes it, it would appear that Chirdeleomer is the head of this confederacy. Elasar is historically associated with the region north of Elam and east of Shinar, making all three of these kings from the region around Babylon. That would have been the region that Abram initially came out of. I mean, really, that would be the region that everyone came out of, right? Because the Tower of Babel was built there, and it wouldn't have been until after Babel that the the nations then began to spread from that place. Now, the fourth king, his name was Tidal, is simply called the King of Nations. And in your King James Bible, you will notice that the word nations there is not capitalized. Uh, There is no precedent for a nation called nations in the Bible, and it's not capitalized because it does not seem as though this man was necessarily uh, the king of any direct uh, kingdom here. Perhaps he might be a, a, a leader of a group of tribes that had not necessarily formed into a formal nation. Perhaps he was even uh, the leader of a band of tribes who had brought themselves together in a sense to be hired out as mercenaries, uh, a sort of uh, mercenary band to bolster their strength that they could be hired out to any nation who wanted to help subjugate other nations as a means by which to strengthen their own armies. We don't exactly know. However, this guy title, he's in charge of a group of people, but it doesn't appear that that group of people is actually bound into a formalized Nation. All of that to say that all four of these kings, we would presume, are from the east, and they are coming into the west uh, in order to conquer. And all of this is rather fascinating, if you think about it. We're just maybe 100 to 200 years past Babel. The nations were broken up on that day, and already men are vying for imperial power, warring against one another, looting, pillaging, These people, who not long ago had united themselves under a single banner for the express purpose of challenging the authority of God, are now scattered with each seeking to claim authority and power for himself. So that's our first confederacy. They are the aggressors in this particular battle, the confederacy of the East. In verse 2, we're introduced to a second confederacy. Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and then the king of Bela, which is Zoar. This confederacy has five kings. Now, we do not have the fullest understanding of the locations of these cities historically, but we would presume, we know a couple of them, we know Sodom and Gomorrah were in that area around the Dead Sea. We also understand Zoar to be south of that area, Zoar being the, the one that's mentioned here, the king of Bela, which is Zoar. Uh, it's possible that the king of Bela's name was in fact Zoar, but one way or another, we recognize that the, the city would eventually become the city of Zoar, and then of course Zo- Zeboim and Adma appear to be down in that south region as well. And if you're looking at that map. So we don't have the fullest understanding. However, they were all cities of the Jordan Valley. 
They were all cities in that region around the Salt Sea, which was called at this time the Vale or the Valley of Siddim. And this was the valley in which this confederacy of kings met against one another. The cities of the plains, the Bible says, had rebelled against Chertoleomer. So Chertoleomer had already conquered this region at one time. And we would presume at this point then that the cities of the plains, that the cities of Jordan, were paying tribute to Chertoleomer in the east. Then they rebel against Chertoleomer. They stop paying him tribute. Chertoleomer learns of this. For 12 years they served him. They rebelled in the 13th year. And Chertoleomer shows up in the 14th year to subdue this rebellion. Now, take note of this. Why did it take him so long to subdue the rebellion? Because it took him that long to travel with his army to get to the place where the rebellion took place. Uh, Recall the the region when we talked about how Abram moved. You do not go across the desert there that's east of this region of Canaan. You have to follow the Tigris and Euphrates rivers up, what's oftentimes called the Fertile Crescent, all the way to that area of, of Haran, where Abram's family settled, and then you travel down, continuing to follow the rivers. Uh, not everyone would do this, but particularly if you're trying to keep an army uh, fed, you're trying to keep an army supplied, you're going to have to follow the water, right? So you follow the water up, and then you follow the water down to get to the place where they have this battle. So they meet in the Vale of Siddim, or in the Valley of Siddim, uh, in the 14th year after Chertoleomer had initially subjugated these people. And uh, they seek again to establish their power in the region. Now, verse 8 picks up at the time when Chertoleomer and these kings arrive in the Jordan River Valley and the battle takes place in the Vale of Siddim. And the Bible tells us that this battle went very, very poorly for the cities of the plains, for Sodom, for Gomorrah, and for the other three confederate uh, kings. The Bible says that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. Uh, that presumably means that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah died. It may simply mean that their armies fell. We will see Abram interact with the king of Sodom in the, the, the verses that are to come. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the same king, right? Maybe it's his son. Uh, we, so we don't exactly know if the kings died there or not. It, it seems to, to imply that the kings died. One way or another, uh, the, the armies are defeated of the plains and their, their armies are scattered. The remains flee into the mountains and Chertoleomer's confederacy pillages the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, taking all their goods, but not just taking their goods, but also taking their people. And the scriptures tell us in verse 12 that this would include, at this time, Lot and his family. And notice at this time, once again, by this point, Lot had pitched his tent towards Sodom. By this point, he is living in Sodom. He dwelt in Sodom. Now, when we last read of Lot, as I said, he was pitching his tent toward Sodom. He was looking to live in the cities of the plains. And as we read these things, we might have done so to mixed reaction. Should Lot not get near that wicked city? I mean, getting near that wicked city doesn't mean he has to associate with that city. Doesn't even mean he has to invest in that city. Should he not move to the Valley of the Plains? We talked a little bit last time about the fact, I I told you that there was this, this thought in me about Abram moving down to Egypt for a time. 
And if the Bible says that the Valley of Jordan was just as fertile as Egypt, then why did he go all the way down to Egypt? Why didn't he just move into the Jordan Valley? We speculate. I, I speculated. I just threw it out there. I said, I don't have any, any real basis for this, but perhaps it's because there was so much wickedness in the Jordan River Valley through Sodom and Gomorrah that Abram said, I'd rather go down to Egypt than, 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 than go to that valley. One way or another, However, it's just a valley. It's fertile there. They don't have to associate with the cities, and this is true. Just because Lot moved into the Jordan Plain, just because Lot got near those cities doesn't mean he has to associate with them. It is absolutely the case that proximity to wickedness does not imply association with wickedness itself. And yet it's also true that the closer... Proximity I have to wickedness, the more likely it is that I'll associate with that wickedness, isn't it? Both in Lot's day and in our day as well. Notice that what began with Lot pinching his tent in the valley of Sodom soon transitioned to Lot dwelling in Sodom. And what perhaps you can think about in your own life or experiences today, and we'll talk a little bit more about it on the other end of things, is the connection between those who get near wickedness in proximity for any number of reasons, many of them probably quite legitimate, but then eventually end up not just in the proximity of that wickedness, but actually associating with that wickedness and suffering the consequences that come to those who do so. So Lot begins by choosing to operate in close proximity to a wicked city. And then we find here in Genesis 14 that now he's living in that wicked city. And their choices, the choices of that city as it relates to rebelling against Chertolaomer, as it relates to this issue of tribute, have now directly affected Lot and his family. And again, we'll come back to that in our application. We continue reading in verses 13 through 16. The Bible says this. And there came one that had escaped. That would be escaped from this battle, right? So the armies uh, are defeated. They scatter to the mountains. And one of those servants runs and comes to Abram. And the Bible says, And he told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plains of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive... He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So the Bible says, a man escaped from the battle, and he fled to Abram. Abram was at the time living in the plains of Mamre, the Amorite, along with his brothers Eschol and Aner. So we have these, these men and their confederate together. So Abram himself had formed a confederacy. It's not a confederacy of nations, but it is a confederacy of very strong and wealthy families. Now we know that Eschol is a place that we will find uh, in, in the, the region for, for times to come. We know Mamre is as well. So these were men that would end up dominating a region and their families would dominate a region for some time. And if you have your Bible with you today, you might have noticed something interesting in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 13. I read there right at the beginning, and there came one that had escaped and told Abram 
the Hebrew. This is the first time in our Bibles that we see the label Hebrew. Now, of course, we're in Genesis, so we're coming to a lot of firsts, right? We're coming to many different times where, where, where you've heard me say, this is the first time something is mentioned in our Bibles. And there is something in, in biblical interpretation that we call the law of firsts. And the idea of the law of firsts is that if you want to understand a term, it is helpful, at, at the very least, to go back to the first time that term is used and to figure out how it is used. And that establishes a bit of a precedent for what you're looking at in the future. Now, the word Hebrew is not as important as some of the other laws of firsts that we have found within the scope of Genesis. But this is the first time that we see the word Hebrew given to anyone in the Bible. And there is some debate as to what this label means. Some state that the word means one from beyond, that the, that the word Hebrew in Hebrew, literally means one from beyond, implying that Abram was a stranger in the land. And that um, makes a lot of sense. Others have said that there's a connection here to Abram uh, being in the lineage of Eber. And you recall from when we talked through our timeline, Eber was the father of Peleg. In Peleg's day, men began living much shorter lives. So that Peleg and his son Reu and his son Sareg and his son Nahor and his son Terah had all died. Terah's son Abram was yet alive, probably in his 80s at this point. But though, though Peleg and Reu and Sareg and Nahor and Terah had all died, Eber was still alive. So that... It's possible that this label of Hebrew was actually Eberu or an Eberite that Abram was most closely associated with the great, with the great, 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 great grandfather that was still alive named Eber and that that is where the name Eberite or Heberite comes in. And this is not a stretch at all. If you look at the Hebrew the two Hebrew words, they share the same consonantal root. So you see that these three consonants in the Hebrew, Hebrew is a consonantal language, those are the same. Uh, and then the only thing that is different is that we have different uh, pointings and then uh, there, there's an ending there on the word Hebrew that actually makes it plural. And so what we find then is that there is a very strong root between Eber and Hebrew, and it's entirely possible that that's what we're dealing with here, is that Abram was strongly associated with his, however many greats I said, grandfather Eber, and that that is why he was called a Hebrew. Either way, this is the first time that we see this label for Abram and it's given specifically to Abram, and it's a label that follows Abram, not necessarily any of the other sons of Eber or anything of the sort, but it follows Abram and his posterity, a label which will follow Abraham, which will follow Isaac, which will follow Jacob. It will be used 32 times in the Old Testament, and it will even follow the lineage of this people into the New Testament with a book of the Bible even bearing that name, of course, the book of Hebrews. So Abram hears that his family member Lot has been taken captive. He arms his servants, and he also does, we'll find out a little bit later, bring the confederacy, his own confederacy along. So he has his 318 servants, and then he, he'll bring a confederacy of men from Eskel and from Mamre and from Anner, and they are going to bring their, their men together, and they are going to go after Chedorlaomer and his confederacy specifically uh, to help... The, the sole objective effectively being to get Lot and his family back. And the Bible says that they chased after this confederacy all the way unto Dan. Now, this is another statement 
that we need to explore a little bit. The statement that they were chased all the way to Dan has led to a measure of controversy in the world of biblical scholarship. There are many who argue that the book of Genesis and really the Pentateuch as a whole was not written by Moses. And we've talked a little bit about that. There's other theories involved as to who wrote these books. And modern scholarship would say that it was written by people during the exile or after the exile. And, and it was a, a combination of, um, uh, of uh, Levites and of scholars and, and of priests and such. And uh, we uh, stand on what we would not just call biblical tradition, but we would stand on what we find in the Word of God, where Jesus specifically speaks of these books of Moses, and we would understand that and believe that Moses, by and large, wrote those five books of the Bible. But this is one of the the particular passages that people point to that say, it is impossible that Moses could have written this book because Moses was dead before the city of Dan existed. The city of Dan was a city in Israel that was claimed after, well after Moses' death during the days of Joshua and the days of the judges. Now, we talked a little bit a couple of weeks ago about the idea of an anachronism, right? The idea of an anachronism is that there is a, a, um, a city or a name of a region that is put in the text in order that the people reading it could understand what we're talking about, even though at the time of the events at hand, that city did not exist. But that anachronism argument doesn't really work here, because if we assume Moses wrote the text, then Moses would not have written Dan as an anachronism, because Dan did not yet exist when it was being written. Not when these events happened, but when they were being written, the city of Dan still did not exist. Therefore, oh, it must be an editorial statement here. Someone must have later come in and put the city of Dan in. Now, let's just talk about where Dan is and then we'll, we'll address this. So, Dan was supposed to receive their inheritance just to the west of Ephraim and Benjamin and thus of, of Judah in the land of Canaan. That was where Dan was supposed to settle. But if you recall from the book of the Judges, they failed to do so. Dan went into the land, but they could not drive the people out of the land. And so instead they decided that they would travel and find a place to live. And if you recall, they ended up going to the very north tip of the the land, the region. Judges 18 tells us they moved north to an area called Laish, where a group of Zidonians, the Bible says, lived in quiet and in security, they had no direct leader and they had no standing army. They were in a valley and they were just minding their own business. They were very content. And Dan looked at that and said, these are easy pickings. And they went in and they destroyed the people and they killed them all. And they took their land and they called that place Dan. So that historically and characteristically, the tribe of Dan has actually been in the north. So some scholars argue, as I've said, that since Dan would not exist for some 500 years after Abram's day, and still decades after Moses' death, it makes no sense that Moses would have or even could have said that Abram chased this, this confederacy of kings up to Dan, and then there, of course, they would chase them further north. And that's a good argument. If, in fact, the Dan that Moses is speaking of is the Dan of Israel. But that isn't necessarily the case. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 1, we read this. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo. This is also called Pisgah. To the top of Pisgah. That is over against Jericho. 
And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan. So God is showing Moses all of the promised land from that mountain, Mount Nebo, Mount Pisgah. And as he does so, the Bible says that Moses was shown all this land of Gilead unto Dan. Now, the city of Dan was not in existence at that time either as it relates to the Dan that Dan, that the tribe of Dan would settle in at the northernmost part of Israel on the west side of Jordan above the Sea of Galilee. But what we notice here is that Dan is associated with Gilead here. Don't lose sight of that. Dan is associated, associated with Gilead. Now, I didn't put in the slide, but in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6, and I'm going to go ahead and turn there and read that. I should have put a slide in for you. I'm going to read you 2 Samuel 24, verse 6. The Bible says, I'll begin in verse 5. They passed over Jordan and pitched an error on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatimhodshi. And they came to Dan Jaon and about to Zidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. There's a city in the land of Gilead called Dan Jaon. Now, Gilead is not near the historic tribe of Dan and the city of Dan. The city of Dan is well above the Sea of Galilee in that area of Laish. Gilead is much further south. But twice now in Deuteronomy 34 and in 2 Samuel 24, we have seen a city called Dan or Dan Jaon associated with the land of Gilead. And in that, when Moses was standing on the top of Mount Pisgah and looking out, the Bible says he looked and he saw as far as Dan, we might presume that that city of Dan Jaon stood in Gilead at the time. And by the way, that would make a whole lot more sense because if Nebo, which is at the bottom here, if Moses is looking across from that mountain, it would make a lot more sense that he'd see all the way to Dan Jaon than necessarily all the way up there to Dan. So that we don't have to assume that there's an error or that somebody else wrote the words of our Bible in order to explain how it is that in the days of Moses there was a city called Dan. It's just a different city called Dan. It's one in Gilead rather than one in the northernmost part of the region. So I don't believe we have a problem here. I don't believe we need to say Moses couldn't have written these books. I don't believe we need to be confused. I don't believe we need to be concerned. I don't see the need to assume any of those things about Genesis. And I don't see a conflict with Dan being mentioned here. Because it would seem that there was a Dan in Gilead. On the east side of Jordan, much closer in proximity to where these battles would have taken place. And by the way, it wouldn't have made nearly as much sense for that confederacy to find their way up to this region as opposed to staying in the area of Gilead as they worked their way back up after conquering the land. So Abram and his servants come upon this army and the Bible says that they destroyed this army. They bring back all the goods and then it's specifically mentioned that they bring back Lot as well. 
And we'll pick up there next time. We'll have a lot more to say about the, the, the next part of this chapter as we think through um, Melchizedek, Melchizedek's label, uh, a new label for God called the Most High God. We'll think through that label. And then we're going to think through who this Melchizedek guy is and what his significance is as we connect it to Hebrews. And that will lead us into Genesis 15, where we have quite a bit to talk about as it relates to the covenants that God will make with Abram. But for our, the rest of our time today, I'd like to bring us back to that idea of Lot and Sodom. And the title of my message was The Consequences of Associations. And we asked the question already about the line between proximity with wickedness and association with wickedness. And while we certainly cannot say outright that if I find myself in close proximity to wickedness, it is inevitable that I will thus associate myself with that wickedness or in fact engage in that wickedness myself, experience and wisdom commend to our hearts the reality that the closer I find myself to wickedness, the more likely it is that I will share in their consequences. There's nothing in the text that says that Lot was a soldier for Sodom that he went out and fought with the young men for this country. And as we get closer to Genesis 19, there's nothing in the text that implies even that Lot engaged in the wickedness that Sodom engaged in. As a matter of fact, the New Testament tells us that as Sot dwell in, in Sodom, it vexed his righteous soul. So that we would presume that Lot was able to live in Sodom without necessarily being overcome by the wickedness of the city itself. Now, when we get to Genesis 19, one of the things we will find is that the majority of his children were overcome, but not him necessarily. And we'll have a lot more to say about that when we get there in Genesis 19. But we already see something here today in Genesis 14. That even to the extent that Lot did not throw himself into the wickedness that Sodom is associated with, Lot's proximity to Sodom, and by this point the association that he had with them living in Sodom, caused him to get caught up in their mess. And it's this that I'd like you to think through this morning. There are certainly messes that we simply can't avoid in life. We find ourselves as Christians in the United States of America in a bit of a mess today. Our leaders are making decisions. Those decisions are not good decisions. Those decisions are decisions which are causing a great deal of problems for individual Americans, for families. And while we hold ourselves separated from the the wickedness of many of those decisions, this does not mean that we will be able to avoid all of the unpleasant consequences that are going to come by virtue of the fact that we are associated with this mess, right? Wicked people are making wicked decisions and those wicked decisions are inevitably going to affect you and I and there's only so much that we can do about it. We, we could do more. Some of us could do more. We have the Heinemans with us today, uh, imported from Tennessee. They said, we're going to get out of this crazy state and we're going to go to another state. The decision is looking wiser and wiser every day. 
So they did something to disassociate themselves from some aspects of wickedness, lest they get caught up in the destruction that will inevitably come to this state due to the, distru- due to the, the, the choices that are being made in this state. And we see those things. There are certain things that we can do to avoid certain associations and such. There are other things that we can't do. Depravity creates a climate of evil that will affect people whether they like it or not. So some of the associations and consequences of those associations are inevitable in society and uh, perhaps to a degree our family. But others are entirely avoidable, aren't they? And this is what Lot confronted when he moved to the cities of the plains. The Bible says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. He placed himself in their proximity. And then beyond that, he moved into the cities of the plains. He dwelt in Sodom, placing himself in their association. And this was his choice. And the choice that he made to associate himself with wickedness brought about the consequences in his life which we're only just now beginning to see play out. This time, the consequence was that he was captured in this battle. Had Abram not come for him, had Abram not armed his servants and had not paired with Mamre and Eskel and Aner and gone and and recovered him, he would have been brought back to the east, he would have been enslaved and his family would have been enslaved. Abram saved him from that consequence. But what's interesting is that when we get to Genesis 18 and 19, where is Lot living? The guy's still in Sodom. He didn't learn his lesson. He didn't back off. He didn't disassociate. He didn't remove himself. Christian, the Bible has many Warnings that it gives us about our associations. Far more than I can read to you today, but let's consider a few. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, That bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. To walk in the counsel of the ungodly, to stand in the way of sinners, to sit in the seat of the scornful, is to position yourself for the consequences of the ungodly Christian. To position yourself for the consequences of of sinners, of the scornful. And what this means is we need to be careful with our associations. Be careful who you associate with. Be careful what you associate with. When we have a young person from the church that goes to college, I always write them a a note of encouragement as they go. And 
One of the things I always write in that note is to be careful who they make their friends because their friends will define them. That's not just something for kids who go to college, though, is it? Our associations matter, don't they, Christian? Our associations as it relates to our companions. Our association certainly as it relates to a spouse. Our association as it relates to amusements, the places we go, the things we put before our eyes. Say, well, I'm mature. I can handle being around these people. I can handle being around those things. Maybe you can. In a sense, Lot could too, couldn't he? His righteous soul was vexed. He never threw his, no pun intended, Lot in with Sodom. And yet, when Sodom rebelled, when Sodom went to war, when Sodom lost that war, he found himself in the crosshairs of Sodom's decision-making process. So we need to be careful. Who we make our friends, who we spend time with. Well, Pastor, I know these friends are rough around the edges, but I really enjoy their company. How long, Christian, until you're caught up in their problems? Until you're brought into their sins? How long before you're caught up in their gossip, in their slander? How long before you bear the the, the sorrow of, of, of their bad decisions as it relates to relationships, as it relates to choices? How long before their philosophy of life rubs off on you? I have a saying as it relates to the doctrine of separation that I give semi-regularly in this church. When the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. If I take a clean rag and I throw it into a pile of dirty rags, I'm not going to come downstairs the next day and find a pile of clean rags. I'm going to find that that clean rag is now dirty by virtue of its association with all the other dirty rags. Can you be sure as you put yourself in the proximity of wickedness voluntarily, that you will not be caught up in the consequences of their sin? Even if that sin isn't even your own. Even, even, if, even if you do not end up doing the things they do, can you be sure that you will not be caught up in the consequences of what they are doing? So we are warned in Proverbs 13, verse 20, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. It does not say just that the fools will be destroyed, but the fool's companion will as well, Christian. Proximity to foolishness Just proximity to foolishness comes with consequences. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 10 to 15. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave, as whole, as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our house with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. Proverbs 4, 14 to 16. Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not except they have done mischief. And their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. There are some in this world, there are, there, there are institutions, there are people 
There are associations that simply are not content until they can bring others down into the pit with them. And to this end, we need to be careful. Lot associated himself with Sodom, and he found himself captured, being carried into slavery, if not for his uncle. One more in the Old Testament, then we'll think through a couple in the New, and we'll be done. Finished. Take is done. People are finished. Grammar lesson. Proverbs 22, 24, and 25. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. We don't always intend to have others rub off on us. But if we're not careful with our associations, it's going to. A week and a half ago, I was in Canada. Mentioned already, I was in Canada with some guys from Tennessee. You cannot help but develop a drawl when you're with a bunch of guys from Tennessee. It's just going to happen. I, I started talking, and next thing you know, I've got a little bit of a drawl, and I'm talking like this now. I didn't intend to talk like that. It's just what happens when you're down south. You just pick that up when you're down south. It's a very comfortable way to talk, and you just kind of pick it up. My associations, whether I meant to or not, whether I wanted to or not, affected me. Now, that's a little thing. It's just a little thing. It's just a drawl. But what else happens when I associate with people? When I put myself into the path of institutions, directions, friendships, it will not but affect us. It has to affect us. A couple in the New Testament for good measure. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That word fellowship there means to share company with, to be in participation with. Don't be in participation with. This doesn't mean that your neighbor comes over and he's a wicked guy and he's asking for, 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 to, to borrow the chainsaw that you have to say, sorry, no fellowship with the, with, with the unfruitful works of darkness. That's, that's not what we're talking about here, Right? But we are talking about the people that you actually allow to influence you. We're talking about the institutions that you allow to influence you. We're talking about where you spend your time, where you spend your money, where you put your priority, the things that actually matter, the currency that you have in this life, your time, your money, and your abilities. Where are they invested? In whom are they invested? Who are you allowing to invest in you? It matters, Christian. Finally, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. That word communications there means companionship, interaction. Doesn't just mean what I say. The idea of communication is not just what I say. It's everything about me. It's my deportment. It's how I present myself. It's who I interact with. Evil interactions can corrupt good manners. It's an interesting translation of the Greek word there. You see homilia. The word communication in our King James Bibles, again, does not just speak to the concept of the spoken word, but our deportment, our actions, and the like. Hence, aligning with this idea of interaction, evil interactions corrupt good manners. And this is the warning for today. And the warning is not that we 
cloister ourselves into some insular community in order to avoid all interaction with evil. First, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that if I refuse to keep company with the wicked in this world in the sense of I refuse to interact with them, then I must come out of this world and I cannot reach the world. But when it comes to our voluntary associations unto fellowship, companionship, friendship, influence, the more we allow proximity and association with wickedness, the more likely it is for their evil communication to corrupt your good manners. And so the call today, I guess, we might say simply is choose your friends carefully. Of course, we broaden that. Choose your amusements carefully. Choose your influences carefully. Choose who you allow to influence your children carefully. But not just your children, you as well. See, because Lot saw the valleys of the plains, and what he saw when he looked at the valleys of the plains was fertile, lush, green, healthy, comfort, wealth. He saw those things, all good things. Then he moved into the valley of the plains, and he associated with the cities of the plains. And the next time we see him, he's living in Sodom. And we know that when Lot is being captured and taken captive because the city of Sodom, along with their confederacies, rebelled against Shirley And had it not been for his uncle, Lot would have been enslaved. May we guard our own lives against such pragmatic associations, Christian. Parents, keep a watchful eye on your children. Keep a watchful eye on who they choose to be their friends. Your children are spending time with someone and you say, wow, I don't like that person. Do something about it then. Well, it's their choice. At at a certain point, it becomes their choice, right? They grow up, they leave their father and mother, they cleave into their spouse, they two become one flesh, they make their choices. They're not in that phase yet. It's not their choice. That's your choice. Guard your children. Guard your children. Guard what is passing through their eyes and through their ears as it relates to internet, as it relates to television, as it relates to music. Oh, it's just amusement. It's just music. It's just a movie. It's influence, Christian. It's influence. And don't just guard it for your children. Guard it for you as well. Church, we need to be the same. We need to guard our influences. I've said many a time, I get you for maximum formally, I get you for a maximum of about four hours of teaching a week. But I don't pretend that you can't get onto YouTube or Sermon Audio or anything else and get significantly more time with some other teacher than with me on any given week. Guard who it is you're listening to, Christian. Guard your influences, church. Lest our proximity and our association to error, lest our proximity and association to wickedness draw us, even if it doesn't draw you into the wickedness itself, lest it draw you into their consequences through your proximity. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.